Welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Ring of Fire, and La Show. We took a huge first step here, and a very important first step. FISA law... Uh, that we've been talking about for so long that the president has been in violation of. The president has announced that he will finally submit to the actual FISA court and start to get warrants from here on out uh, for it, looking into possible cases of terrorism, etc. So it appears for the moment being, first, we're going to give you the hundred caveats in a second and the things that are about to come up, but it appears for the moment being the president has agreed to fo- start following the law again. And that's why, if anything deserves it, we got it. And it's not a we got him, we got it <laughs> in this case. This does, because this is enormous if it proves to be what they claim it is. I couldn't be less moved by this piece of information. Well, I, I, <laughs> well, we tried. Oh, well, we didn't. No, I mean, the it reason, didn't work. <laughs> the reason being like, oh, wow, the president is going to follow the law? Well, wow, crazy. But, well, I mean... Who gives a flying F? Let's let's prosecute him or let's hold him accountable for all the laws that he's broken up until now. I mean, that's the story. Well, Jill has made a, a good point in in what I think is missing another good point. But I think uh, I, I mean, first of all, to this shows what what can happen when when there is political change. That that that's definitely one of the themes I want. I mean, get it to. is yeah. good news that there was a law in the books that he ignored. And now uh, it would appear because the, he simply had uh, all Democrats and many Republicans against him was actually going to change. And Republicans now all of a sudden feeling free to say, I always said you should follow the FISA law. So, right? <laughs> right, so did, sure but whatever, forget the hypocrisy. The important thing is that they follow the law and that we return to the rule of law. What I think Jill makes a great point is, is that our big celebration is a law that's been on the books since the late 70s that everyone has followed. This president broke, and now it's like, okay, I'll follow it. And we're like, yeah! Uncle <laughs> Melvin stopped molesting me. He's super! Yay! Wow, cool, I love you. Pat on the back. All right. Well, look, let, let's get real here. First of all, I don't Uncle think Melvin that Melvin stopped molesting <laughs> I don't think we should hug Uncle Melvin. And I think we should look into pro- prosecuting Uncle Melvin. And I love that analogy. So don't get me wrong. I'm not like, oh, Bush rocks now, right? And should the Democrats still have the investigators that they're going to have? Unquestionably. But what I'm celebrating today, and I think it is a real celebration, is obviously not what the Bush's actions or the Bush has given in. It's that what Ben Mankiewicz predicted a long time ago that, what, that I believed and that I hoped for but I wasn't positive about the American system winning over these over this rogue administration is beginning to happen. And mm-hmm. this is a very important step in that the system is bigger than these guys and the system's going to win. Uh, what happened was the Democrats won control of Congress. The reason, I'll tell you the, the very two very specific reasons why the Bush administration uh, changed their mind and decided to follow the law going forward is one, 
when the Democrats took control of Congress, and again, Ben and Michael and a lot of people on the show, and not that I disagree with this, of course, in any way, shape, or form, but they championed the idea that, look, you got to win first, and winning makes an enormous difference. And here's one of the ways that it does make a difference, and again, how Ben was right. Now that the Democrats control what hearings happen in the Senate, they had put together a hearing on what what was happening with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the FISA laws that we've been talking about, and this warrantless wiretapping. And Alberta Gonzalez is scheduled to come in front of that uh, board today. today. Okay. So he's supposed to go there, and he's supposed to answer questions, and he was in a bit of a panic over it because he should be because he's breaking the law. The president's breaking the law. They're breaking the law together. He doesn't have any good answers. And now, since the Democrats have taken over, he'll be under oath. He can't pull what he did with the Republicans, where Specter was like, oh, I really care about this, but just go ahead and lie if you want, because you're not under oath. So now he's going to be under oath. So what did he do? They pressed the panic button. They said, okay, fine, you win. So now Gonzalez will go for the hearings today, and he'll say, oh, what are you, yeah, 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 we're doing what you said. What? It's over. It's over. What are you talking about? It's moot. You don't even have to talk about it. We're doing what you said. The second thing that happened was a court in Cincinnati in Ohio said this uh, program is illegal. You're breaking the law. And that's going to go to up. It's coming up for appeal very, very soon. And they knew they'd lose the appeal. So they're going to go to the court and say, <laughs> it's moot. A court can't even consider this because we already changed it. So stop telling us what we're doing is illegal. They, so that's the both Congress and the judiciary, the other two branches, asserting their power over the executive and winning. Mm-hmm. And us getting back to a, a nation of laws rather than a nation of men. And that's a great sign for America. And I think today, and we'll get into the caveats in a second, but for that alone, today's a great day for America. Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the welfare line. Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know, talking about a revolution Sounds Who are people gonna rise up get their share? People gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 It was in December of last year that we first learned the president had authorized domestic spying by the National Security Agency. Tonight at the start of this December comes word that eavesdropping might be just the proverbial tip of the iceberg when it comes to the federal government's surveillance on its own citizens. It seems not being on the no-fly list is no longer enough 
to keep someone out of the clutches of the Bush administration. The Associated Press reporting that millions of American citizens entering or leaving the U.S. in the past four years have been assigned a secret terror rating based on such bizarre factors as number of one-way trips taken, seating preferences, dining preferences. It get worse. Travelers are not allowed to see nor challenge the computer-generated scores, which the government plans to keep on file for up to 40 years. The Democrat Patrick Leahy, the incoming chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, today expressing outrage, promising scrutiny of the program in the new Congress. One can only imagine how outraged Senator Leahy might be at seeing this other thing, the kind of image taken by a new federal screening system, X-raying of passengers' bodies to detect concealed explosives and other weapons. That's apparently not all it can detect. The Transportation Security Administration planning to have one such machine up and running at Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport by Christmas. If you have been roped into spending the holidays with the in-laws in Scottsdale, here is your perfect excuse. Or go Greyhound for a constitutionality x-ray. I'm joined now by George Washington University law professor and constitutional law expert Jonathan Turley. Thanks once more for your time tonight, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Having now seen that photo, we can't not begin with the x-ray machine. It would seem, Jonathan, to be not just intrusive, but, but actually indecent, so much so. <laughs> what, what is the difference between requiring passengers to subject themselves to that and simply asking them to strip off all their clothes before boarding? Well, maybe this is a recruiting tool to get TSA applicants, which will now be called TNA or something. I don't know. But uh, most of us are more afraid we'll be sent to something like Jenny Craig than Gitmo after this because it is a very revealing picture. And, you know, on the serious side, you know, there is real problems uh, with having strangers looking at an image, uh, even one with parts covered up, that still is, is pretty accurate in terms of what you look like under your clothes. And the Constitution recognizes that there are some unreasonable searches and seizures. I would have to say that this seems pretty unreasonable. Uh, I think most people will be horrified. You know, we've all seen these, these people gathered around these screens uh, looking at what's in your luggage. Sometimes it looks like a coffee clutch. Uh, I think people will be horrified uh, to know that their actual physical image was on the machine. Let's turn to this personal terror rating. I mean, it sounds terrible, but I'm having trouble nailing down what's particularly terrible about this. Is it the criteria? You know, when you use things like meal preference, that might be a kind of hidden racial or religious profiling. Or if not that, what is the core problem with this plan? Well, you know, I testified in Congress about the use of profiling uh, in the airports, which I happen to support on a general level. But there are great dangers with profiling. One of them is obvious that it's been used for racial uh, purposes and it's been used improperly in the past. Uh, but also, it's something that is very easy to abuse. Uh, you know, we've seen in just normal profiling, people arrested when they're the first to get off a plane because they're in a hurry, or people arrested when they're the last to get off the plane because why are you taking so long or holding back? And you can put enough innocuous items in there that it becomes ludicrous. And when you're looking at what people are ordering, I mean, do we really think that terrorists are going to order a, a you know, an appropriate religious meal? Uh, they're not looking for vegans. Uh, obviously, the meal selection is, is probably geared a lot towards the Islamic faith. That's my guess. Was the analyst who told the Associated Press, uh, never before in American history has our government gotten into the business of creating mass risk assessment ratings on of its own citizens, correct when he then said that this was an unprecedented attack on the privacy of Amer the average American? Well, I think it's a significant attack on, on privacy. What bothers me the most 
uh, is what Senator Leahy said, that he seems to have been in the dark about this. And once again, we see an administration that has this insatiable appetite for massive computer systems and keeping records on uh, Americans and uh, sort of codifying everyone's life. And repeatedly, Congress has told them they don't want these types of systems uh, to exist. The fact that such a powerful senator seems to be taken unaware by this, I find quite shocking. Lastly, there, as if we needed another issue, there's another privacy issue. Starting today, U.S. companies also are required to store every email and every instant message and every electronic document created by their employees. Basically, if you say it, you write it, you type it, you, you expect your employer to keep it if you didn't already, but later they could possibly use it against you or someone could use it against you in a court of law. How concerned should we be about, about this as an invasion of privacy? Well, all of these form a sort of mosaic. I mean, privacy is one of the things that has distinguished us as a nation. We have always had a far more robust idea of privacy than any other nation. And we're fast becoming a fishbowl society. We're losing privacy. We have far less privacy today than my grandparents had. And as you lose your privacy, your expectations of privacy, it changes who we are and creates chilling effects. And this is an example of that, where everything you write is going to be recorded and preserved in the sense that I'm under a microscope as a citizen. That's not healthy for a free society. We need to have those emails free for other people to publish them on the Internet. Jonathan Turley, the <laughs> constitutional law expert, professor at George Washington University. As always, my friend, great. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Keith. have been crystal clear about the fact that Nero sat idly by and watched Rome burn because Nero, you see, was as loony as a daffy duck. Most of that Nero lunacy came from the fact that he was so comfortable with his unchecked power that he routinely disregarded reality. Nero's history is one of a lunatic leader who rarely had a grasp on just how bad things around him really were. And those few George Bush supporters still kicking around with W stickers plastered on their Humvee windshields, those people still like to characterize that George Bush dementia as decisiveness and unwavering assuredness. It's no surprise because even as Nero played his lyre while Rome was engulfed in flames, he still had his own small gaggle of bent, moronic followers calling him Caesar. 
We got the first glimpse of the shrub's reality impairment September 11, 2001, when little George continued to read My Pet Goat to school children, even after he had learned that our country was under attack by Islamic terrorists. His blindly loyal GOP androids told us back then that the shrub was taking a few minutes to think before he jumped on Air Force One and hit out like a scared school child for two days. But we should have recognized that the shrub was suffering from that Nero syndrome even back then. At the last State of the Union address, we all got another glimpse of how badly our own modern Nero suffers from reality disconnect when he failed to say a word about how four generals had pointed out that our military is stretched so thin that we're incapable of responding to a true military threat anywhere in the world. As I watched him bumble his way through that pathetic State of the Union address, it was clear to see that he had no connection at all with the painful suffering he had visited on so many families of American soldiers. It's as if he can't project himself into the homes of Iraqis where 150,000 innocent men, women, and children have died as a direct result of his endless stupidity. In that speech, words like global warming and energy dependence or corruption and affordable health care were all interspersed all around his unsophisticated, almost sophomoric address. But it was easy enough to look in his eyes and see that he still hasn't connected those dots because he truly does suffer from the Nero syndrome. And even as these words are spoken, our very own 2007 Nero could care less that almost 60 percent of the American public regard the shrub presidency as a complete failure. He doesn't really care that there are only 27% of the American public that still call themselves Bush automatons and approve of the job he's doing. And just like Nero, no doubt his eyes glaze over and a dimwit smile comes to his face when he was told that virtually every expert who has looked at the Iraqi war and its relationship to terrorism tells us that the Shrub's civil war has dramatically increased the threat of real terrorism all over the world. You know, you can almost hear that demented voice somewhere in the dark corner of his mind, a voice that says, burn, baby, burn. There are lots of ways to communicate with the show, and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, Send emails direct to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. When Tim gets worked up, he lets it rip. And uh, I say Tim, not Congressman Ryan, not because I'm flippant, but because Tim's kind of a young guy, and it sometimes you know he gets passionate, and uh, he's and a I love it. He's the co-leader of the thirty-something caucus, sort of young Democrats. Yeah, and you know you're going to hear it just as fine on the radio. The one thing that you can see on the YoungTurks.com as we play you the video is Tim is pointing throughout in a very aggressive manner. He, he's a pointer, and I love it. So here's Congressman Tim Ryan from on the floor of the house. And then, on top of all that, they leave the new Democratic majority an absolute budget catastrophe for us to deal with. 
And over the course of those 14 years, the Republican Congress and the Republican President borrowed more money, more money from foreign interests than all of the previous presidents combined. So now we're going to get lectures from the Republican majority on how to run the budget process. Now we're going to get lectures from the most incompetent, ineffective Congress in the history of this institution, Mr. Speaker. The history of this institution. And this party will not be lectured about veterans' benefits. We will not be lectured to by the Republican minority about how to balance a budget. And we will not be lectured to about investments in this country. You look at this CR and you look what we put in. We're not going to be lectured to by anybody. We've made and promises and accomplished more in the last few hundred hours of this Congress than that Republican majority has in the last 14 years. We implemented PAYGO so we will balance the budget. We made some difficult decisions with the CR so we can move forward. And we're not going to be lectured to because we've made promises and we've delivered. Now just look at the first hundred hours, Mr. Speaker. Just the first hundred hours. We cut student loan interest rates in half. Once fully implemented, we'll save the average person taking out a loan over five, almost $5,000. We raised the minimum wage. We allowed the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate drug prices on behalf of the Medicare recipients. We repealed the corporate welfare to the energy companies that that majority, Republican majority, put in place and we're taking that money and investing it into alternative energy sources. We're doing things positive for the American people. I love it. I can't get enough of it. When he said, when he says that Republican Congress, he points to the other side, and he's like, "I'm we're not going to get lectured to by these guys who are the most incompetent Congress ever in here." I can't get enough of it. No, apparently you can't. Joining us now is Sean Penn, Oscar-winning actor and one political activist who's not content to simply give speeches and join protest marches, although you did make a fantastic speech at the anti-war march in Washington last week. Um, Sean also visited Iraq twice uh, since 2002 and also Iran on his own initiative and as an occasional foreign correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle. He got out in a boat and helped rescue victims of Hurricane Katrina 
and he recently called openly for the impeachment of President Bush and Vice President Cheney. Sean, thanks so much for joining us on Ring of Fire. Pleasure to be talking to you. Um, you gave this fantastic speech to the Creative Coalition. You won the Chris Reeve Award um, and gave a speech in which you called for the impeachment of President Bush and Vice President Cheney. That's something that we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, and, you know, the, the reaction that we get to that, even, even from people, as you pointed out, like Frank Rich, is that, well, you know, it's time to move on. What do you, what do you think when people say that? I think there's a kind of uh, complacency, a kind of a reliance on status quo thinking that's largely generated by the movement of the Democratic Party right now. With the newfound Congress, I think that the issues are very clearly being addressed on the basis of the 2008 election. And I think as a t sort of title page to that, the Hillary campaign is what's being centralized uh, in, in the movement. So when we talk about things like cutting funding to the war, and without properly communicating to the American people that that should and must include some international security forces to, 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 to do what can be done to prevent further bloodbaths in Iraq. Or when we talk about things like impeachment, uh, the, the, the real protection of, of the Democratic Party is moving towards the center in, in the notion of not being uh, not not having the courage to be mavericks, and also not having the, the faith in the American people, and I think that's where the American people now have an opportunity and a and a real uh, job to stand up with Congress and to, to because I think that in many in many corners of Congress the pressure would be a welcome pressure. Um, we see a, a new speaker in Pelosi who's taken both of those issues formally off the table, both. A, a binding agreement to stop funding, as well as the impeachment issue. And I think that in the precarious position she's in, uh, the, the gamble is that, that, that common gamble of the past, which won't work today because people are dying today, and it's time to do it now. But those things that the Congress might do won't, won't work without the support of the people. So we're really we're mutually reliant, and it's time for the people to, to, as I said in another speech, to be the deciders and to tell Congress what it is that we want to see done. We're talking with Sean Penn on Ring of Fire. You know, I remember um, when Newt Gingrich, during the mid-'80s, um, when Newt Gingrich kind of made himself a maverick in Congress, and he was hypercritical um, of the Democrats. He took a very kind of radical position, radical right-wing position, on all of these different issues, and he was being warned by... Um, by moderates, by Republican moderates in the House, that the American people would, uh, that he was going to alienate the American people with this kind of strong rhetoric. Uh, but in fact, because he, he said what he believed in, people wanted to follow him. And he was leading in a completely malevolent direction. But people want to, people want to follow somebody who have strong opinions, who have a strong, compelling vision, and are not scared to articulate it. And today it seems that many of the Democrats that we have in the House think that um, the only way to retain political power is through, you know, triangulation by simply um, staying safely in the middle and doing their focus groups and their polling. And, um, you know, that's something that you've been outspoken about as well. Well, I think that if, if, if history means something and if we're going to go ahead and spend money to teach our children history, 
then our then our representatives ought to pay attention to it as well. On the political aspect of it, politically, the history of impeachment is that it has not done, uh, done harm to the party that initiated the impeachment. In this situation, again, I think that what Newt Gingrich did, if anything, proves the, the kind of competing sensibilities of what the media advertises as, as the common feeling of a country versus what the common feeling of the country actually is. And it's really that uh, I, I think that our, our, our representatives are as guilty of being uh, told which direction to go in by the media as, as many people have in the past. But I think that, that, that with, the, with the population, it's changing. And the 400 to 500,000 people in the streets of Washington the other day uh, attest to that. You were critical also of Bill O'Reilly, of uh, Rupert Murdoch, Roger Ailes, Sean Hannity, uh, Rush Limbaugh for their war, for their role in the, in the um, roll-up to the Iraq war. Um, how do you think those people should be feeling now? And and how what should our reaction be to those you know to the people who were who were banging the drums for us to go into this war, but unwilling to fight it themselves? Well, you know it's 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 almost at the point where I feel silly commenting on people that behave in in, in the way that these people have, and so with with really no understanding of of what a democracy means. Uh, you know, I think in honoring the blood that has been shed in many wars for, for the freedoms of this country, if only the issue of free speech is not celebrated, then that is as singular a, an anti-American sentiment as, as can be expressed. And those people are there to quell free speech, and it, and it is their intention to do so. So I, I really think that we should be paying more attention to the 400,000 people in the streets of Washington than to a few blowhards who are paid by multinational corporate interests to spew their poison. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the response of Senator Joe Lieberman to the uh, response of the federal government to what happened in New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina last May was uh, angry. He issued a blistering statement added to the Homeland Security Committee's report on Katrina. At that time, of course, he was a Democrat and in the minority. He uh, accused the Bush administration of withholding details about what top officials were doing as the hurricane uh, arrived and flooded most of New Orleans. At the time, he said the lack of information left critical questions about disaster preparedness and response unanswered. Quote, there are matters we could not fully explore because of agency and administration recalcitrance and in some cases intransigence. 
Lieberman wrote last year. Only through a thorough and comprehensive investigation of what went wrong could we be assured that the government we will know what steps are necessary to get it right the next time. And he was critical at the time of a decision by the then chairwoman of the committee, Susan Collins of Maine, not to issue subpoenas for that information. Well, now Joe Lieberman is chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, an independent who votes, well, who caucuses with the Democrats, and having holding a hearing in New Orleans this week to uh, basically show New Orleanians' message, we care, the senator now says he doesn't want to issue subpoenas for the information that the administration still has not provided. Quote, the senator believes a more productive use of his time and that of his staff is to make sure legislative fixes are implemented to ensure that a response to a future catastrophe is better, says his staff. The senator feels the American public has already concluded the White House response was lacking. Rather than take on the White House and open an old fight, he believes he can be more productive by moving forward. Yes, we were told at the time... We don't want to, you know, it's too early for the blame game. Let's 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 get this response going. Plenty of time later to uh, fix blame. Well, now it's later. I think this is an approach that uh, Senator Lieberman can take much farther. Reality TV has just gone way beyond cops. Oh, what do we have here? Looks like a murder one. Two bodies. Wouldn't that be a murder two? Yeah, or two murder ones. Okay. All right. Good. What happens when a senator hits the mean streets? The bad guys get a one-way ticket to anywhere else. So these, these are fingernail scrapings under this pistol's hammer. Yeah, yeah we can trace those. Yeah, yeah, we could, but I don't think either of us wants a witch hunt. Every fact's a clue. Every clue's a door. Senator, we've got a positive DNA match on the hair samples. Mm. It's it's slam dunk time. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? I think it's also time to look forward. Let's just make sure nobody with this DNA ever does this again. No bones. Joe Lieberman and a team of real, dedicated crime scene investigators tear up the town. But they never play the blame game. It's hard to point fingers when they call you no bones. Fighting crime just got a whole lot realer on the new Fox Tuesday, right after whatever the hell else we can find.
You know, big tent politics is usually a good idea because it's politics of inclusion. The Democrats are consumed with big tent issues as a way to kick off their congressional agenda in 07. And, you know, in the long run, issues like drug price control, minimum wage reform, a better availability for college loans and, and, and lobby reform. All these are the kinds of big tent issues that separate progressives from the corporatist lapdog GOP that's plagued America for six dismal years. But I'm afraid the Madison Avenue political handlers are again giving progressive leadership bad advice by telling them to forgive and forget six years of GOP political strong-arming. Six years of GOP's arrogant disregard for democracy and decency. And, well, you know, maybe we ought to just move on with a positive agenda. Let's all just make nice. Well, Democratic leadership needs to understand that most of the voters who put him back in control don't want to just make nice and move on to a compromised politics as usual. They're not interested in that. Democrats are in power because the American public, by an overwhelming polling margin, believe that the GOP is systemically, institutionally dishonest and corrupt. The polling prior to the November election showed that a strong majority of Americans view the new GOP as a party of ruthless, phony, fraudulent cheats who can't be trusted to run government with any modicum of integrity. Democrat leadership needs to focus on the fact that, yes, big tent politics is important, but good government, good social reengineering, and solid, important legislation can continue to take place at the same time that indictments are served, the same time that investigations are concluded, and political criminals are hauled off to jail. So before Democratic leadership joins hands around a campfire and sings kumbaya with the GOP leadership thugs, they need to remember this, that a huge number of voters went to the polls so they could finally have some questions answered about things like our war based on lies. They wanted to know how it is that the GOP engineered a government in just six years that illegally wiretapped our phones, illegally read our mail, monitored our personal computers, conducted searches and seizures of our home without a warrant. A huge number of voters want investigations and yes, maybe even indictments to flow out of Dick Cheney's secret sweetheart love fest with Enron, Exxon, and virtually every segment of an energy industry that pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into the grand old party in the last 10 years. They want to know, what did Shifty Dick give away? What did he promise in those meetings? Those voters that went to the polls in November are interested to know more about Cheney, Halliburton, no-bid contract giveaways in Iraq. Those voters want to understand how much participation this administration had in allowing the oil industry to price gouge every American for an entire two years without any action from the GOP Congress. And you know what? Those are just a few of the answers most voters want about what the grand old party and their shrub have been doing behind closed doors unchecked for the last six years. So yes, Go ahead and build a big tent. That's a good idea. Include everyone. Make America a better place to live. But don't do this. Don't ignore the obvious. Progressives are not ready to make nice yet. You need to remember that.
There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. What if they cut off the funding? What you know? It seems like there's a lot of opposition to this escalation idea. Yada yada yada. And he's batting them uh, away left and right, going, Ah, we don't care. We don't care. The president can do whatever he's going to do anyway. But here's the killer line: "Quote: The president has the ability to exercise his own authority if he thinks Congress has voted the wrong way." Okay, get a load of that quote. You know what that means? That means not only do we not care how Congress votes. But we're actively not going to listen to them. That's the kind of quote that leads to constitutional crisis. Read the quote again. The president has the ability to exercise... Oh, okay, yeah, that's the one I'm looking at right here. Yeah, it's a stunning freaking quote. I'm sorry, go ahead. The president has the ability to exercise his own authority if he thinks Congress has voted the wrong way. No, he doesn't. No, you see, the Congress has voted. He doesn't have the right to say, uh, well, I think Congress voted the wrong way. What's the so point I'm of having... So I'm just going to do it. What is the point of having Congress anymore? I mean, if you had to ask President Bush or even Tony Snow at this point, then what is the purpose of Congress anymore? Why? If they are not there to put the president in check, if they're not there to help balance out the three branches of government, what are they there for? Why, the... why don't you just do everything yourself, President Bush? The, the next question ought to be sort of online of what Jill's saying, but very reasonable. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have, raise your voice. You don't have to do anything. You'd be like, oh, all right. What's the point of Congress? Like what I just said. Right. But I mean, but I, that should be asked of Tony Snow. I just mean, because not because I necessarily want to make some political zinger there with him. I'd like him to explain it, you know, and then once he explains it, you like, but if they, if, if the president disagrees, he can just ignore it. Doesn't it, does it seem to you then that Congress is sort of uh, rendered uh, powerless? Is there no reason to have them, or are they like the British House of Lords? Would they large just largely be ceremonial? And then, which uh, obviously, then I would get antagonistic, and I would say, "Do you think George Bush is a king? Because a king can ignore Congress. A president can't ignore. A president can't say that he'll exercise his authority even if he, if he thinks Congress has voted the wrong way." I don't give a damn what you think. If Congress has voted the wrong way, they voted. you got to listen to them. That's the whole constitutional system. It's called America. What happens when somebody, an executive, exercises authority, even though Congress has prohibited it, is that's a dictatorship. That's a... You know, a monarchy. That's an authoritarian or totalitarian government. I don't know. Now, I didn't see the whole press conference. I'm re- we're reading excerpts uh, from it here. But it is, isn't it, would it not be fair to say to Tony Snow... Was Iran-Contra a scandal? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think Reagan broke the law when they ignored the Boland Amendment? Or do you think he had the right to ignore the Boland Amendment because he disagreed with it? 
you know? It's he, the most because that is exactly the same kind of situation. No national security. Uh, we we need to get uh, we need to get uh, money to the uh, to the Contras, uh, and so uh, that's it. This is how we're going to do. There was no show this past week. I uh, I was taken out of the game, so to speak, by uh, some une- unexpected family issues that came up and actually took me back to California for the week. The details of what actually happened, you know, it's not important and 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 personal, anyways. But uh, but the the trip to California was what really got me because. The whole way there, I was just thinking uh, to just a couple of months ago when I left California, and the whole trip leaving California, I was thinking to myself, you know, I've, I've lived in California my entire life, and now I may very well never come back. You know, I I just thought I'm I'm leaving. I have friends here still, but you know. We, when we see each other, they'll, maybe they'll just come visit me instead of the other way around. And, uh, you know, it, not that it's likely that I'll never be back in California, but I thought there's a chance. I mean, at least not for a very long time. And so I was just uh, struck by the irony that only two months later, two and a half months later, I was <clears throat> on my way back and, uh, so I, just, I flew from Baltimore to Las Vegas, Las Vegas to Sacramento, and for that last leg of the trip, it was only like an hour flight, and I thought, well, an hour flight, that's a perfect time to listen to the latest edition of This American Life. And so, I don't know, about two-thirds of the way through the show, well, and two-thirds of the way through the flight, um... We were just passing over the Sierra Nevada mountains, that's the border into California, just as I was listening, maybe you, you actually heard it, uh, Ira Glass, when he was talking about, the whole show was about what I learned from television, was the theme, and so Ira Glass was talking about what he learned from television, and he told, tells the story about watching the OC with his wife, and how they sing along to the theme song. The things I love, I love, I love completely, and it's totally personal, my feelings about these shows. It's personal in the deepest possible way. And, um, like, I'm a kind of dorky fan when it comes to stuff. Um, my wife is here in the room, so maybe this is bad to be telling this story. Every week the OC comes on, and my wife, Anahid, and I, we sit on the couch, and when the theme comes on, California... Um, we, we sing along with it in full voice. You know what I mean? Like, think about what that takes. Like, I'm 47 years old. I'm a grown-ass man, you know? We're a married couple, you know, sober. We are sober singing the theme to a Fox show. When the theme song finally kicks in and starts playing, I just thought, well, this is just perfect. Here I am again. California, here we come. Right back where we started from Hustle, scrap your guns 
Started. 